0: zero navigators podcast our spin-off podcast series focusing on the growing need for businesses to align their strategies with climate science that means setting net zero emissions goals i'm Edie's senior reporter sarah george and i'm going to be presenting this episode so a very warm welcome to you we've been running this podcast series since shortly after the uk set its net zero target in law for 2050 last year Since that moment, we've seen more and more businesses and public sector organisations attempting to get ahead of the curve, strengthening their carbon and energy strategies and pledging to become net zero well before the 2050 deadline. In this series, ED speaks with the trendsetters and trailblazers that have set these targets to get insight into the work behind the scenes. So each of these episodes features an in-depth interview with a business that has committed to a Net Zero strategy. And to mark Net Zero November 2020, our special month of themed content, we will be having a new episode every week. In the last episode, which went live last Friday, I spoke with VLUX's Vice President for Global Comms, Sustainability and Public Affairs, Ingrid Roymat. She spoke about the company's plans to become lifetime carbon neutral by 2041. Velux Group is working with WWF to deliver against this ambition and is working towards internal reduction targets as well as funding nature-based solutions. For this episode, we're speaking to Dentsu International's Chief Sustainability Officer, Anna Lungley. Dentsu recently announced a net zero target for 2030, underpinned by an SBTI-approved science-based target to reduce absolute emissions by almost half. Anna also took part in our Net Zero Live event digitally last week. So without further ado, here is my interview with Anna in full. Well, hello, Anna. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today.
1: Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Anytime. How how are you doing and where are you dialing in from today? So I'm dialing in from a very unusually sunny Gloucestershire, um, today. Um, so a little village called Frampton Mansell, um, home of the Extinction Rebellion. So um, it, it's it's more exciting than you, you would think, given our rural surroundings. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. And, and
0: Anna, I know you've been coming along to our events and been part of our clubs for a, a while, but I think it's your first time on the podcast, right?
1: Yes, that's right. So it's
0: exciting to be here. Mm hmm. Well, for the benefit of those at home, would you mind just giving us an an overview of of your career and your your role in
1: remit at Dentsu? Absolutely. So I'm um, Chief Sustainability Officer for Dentsu International. Um, For those not familiar with Dentsu, um, Dentsu is one of the world's largest digital media and advertising companies, employing just over 48,000 people in 145 markets today. Um, You'd be very familiar with our work. We work with many of the world's biggest brands, um, including IKEA, Coca Cola, P&G, Vodafone, but also NGOs like Greenpeace and WWF. Um, I joined Dentsu two years ago. Um, Prior to that, I was a BT for 15 years, although I originally started life um, in media working for Omnicom. So you
0: have a sort of dual speciality then in comms and in sustainability?
1: Yes. Absolutely. So this is this is um, the perfect role for me. Um, I have to say I love being at Dentsu. Having media, creative, comms, and sustainability um, is the sweet spot, definitely.
0: Mm-hmm. Great. Well, as we all know, this is the Net Zero Navigators podcast, and we're on the call today shortly after Dentsu International set a 2030 net zero target. So I'm hoping to get a little bit more under the skin of what it'll take to. To meet that. So what are you and your team planning um, in the short term to get this target off the ground and what are some of the things that will take a bit longer?
1: Yes it's a very exciting time for us. So um, Denso already had a strong commitment to climate action so we are a signatory to RE100 and already had a science-based target at two degrees. Um, But as we all know the science has changed and having achieved our carbon reduction target our interim 2020 carbon reduction target one year early and succeeded in procuring 100% of our electricity from renewable sources, we really wanted to raise the level of ambition So in July, we signed the Business Ambition Letter for 1.5 degrees, and I'm delighted that in October, as you would say, we announced our commitment to achieving net zero emissions by 2030, supported by a new approved science-based target at 1.5 degrees. And whilst it's a 2030 target, of course, we have already started work. Mm -hmm. So over the last three months, we've been working with our leadership team and subject matter experts across the business to develop decarbonisation strategies for each of our five areas of material emissions um, and that's tech, technology, flights, business travel, um, buildings and, ple- and fleet, um, professional fees and research and advertising and this starts by really understanding the data because these are quite complex areas particularly um, media and advertising um, but Fortunately, that is one of our core capabilities. Um, so the work that we've been doing for technology, for example, which is our single biggest source of emissions, mm-hmm. we've been working with our global technology and procurement teams to develop a roadmap to reduce emissions. Um, we work with finance to develop a new strategy and policy related to business travel. And of course we're, you know, this is the perfect time really to look at facilities in the state because so many organizations are taking a radical new approach in the wake of the pandemic um, and the current lock-in to ensure that net zero is an integral part of our future work strategy and there are there are reinforcement mechanisms I'm very lucky to be supported by an incredibly um, committed leadership team so one of the things that we've looked at is executive remuneration and reinforcement mechanisms mm-hmm. including putting sustainability kpis on the balanced scorecard so these, these are all practical next steps but in practice some elements of the strategy so for example reducing business travel by almost half um, is going to require radical change In the culture of our industry we're a professional services organization we travel a lot to see our clients we travel a lot to be on shoots um this is going to take time um as you say some of these things take a long time and culture change doesn't happen overnight so this is effective challenge in particular for um our sector so it's my hope it's one that we can tackle together and one other area which might take a bit longer, actually, is stimulating the production of renewables. So I mentioned we have a commitment to RE100. We're currently procuring 100% of our electricity for renewable sources, but in some markets like Taiwan, we actually procure racks in adjacent markets. Um, so what we want to do is continue to work with RE100 to drive, um, drive stimulation and production of um, renewables in those markets, um, including Japan. Um, I am hopeful Prime Minister Sika's recent announcement is going to help.
0: Mm.
1: No, I know you mentioned
0: the global remit of Dentsu, but am I right in thinking that it's headquartered in Japan and then has quite a large presence in in the UK?
1: We actually have dual headquarters. Uh, So Dentsu Group is headquartered in Japan and is made up of two um, organisations. The Dentsu International Business, which is 145 markets outside Japan, and Dentsu Japan Network, which is domestic domestic markets. Um, And Dentsu International is headquartered in London. Mm.
0: So that's lots of different policy contexts and and cultural contexts to consider.
1: Absolutely, it is. But actually, what's really interesting is about working for an organisation which has a Japanese heritage, is that the Japanese have a three year plan and a 100 year plan. So from a sustainability perspective, that's actually very helpful because we do take the long term view.
0: Mm, Fantastic. Well, I'd like to nail down a bit more of the specifics about the net zero target. So something we're asking for this series is that a lot of companies are choosing to say net zero, but some others are choosing carbon neutral so how do you differentiate between the two and why was net zero the, the choice for for Dentsu?
1: That is a very good question um, and with all of these things the devil is in the detail and we were very conscious that the definition around net zero is becoming more stringent um, the science-based targets initiative are looking at frameworks around that and one of the things that we wanted to do was really make sure that we future-proofed our targets. Um, so whilst, you know, some people say, you know, net zero requires the actual removal of GHG emissions, from a technical perspective, um, what we found um, is Scope 3 is optional with carbon neutral, um, but likely to be mandatory with net zero. Um, and that's why we're focusing on net zero. And we've included, of course, the entirety of our Scope 3 within that. hmm Great. And then in that scope three,
0: particularly, is is there a role for offsetting? You've spoken a lot about reducing travel and procuring renewables, but a lot of businesses are seeing offsetting as a piece of the puzzle.
1: Yes. Absolutely. We have committed to offset any hard to decarbonise emissions. For example, the travel that we will still need to undertake to service our clients effectively. So I talked about flying being a key aspect of what we do and how we see our clients. Whilst we want to reduce that by almost half, we know that we will still need to travel. Um, The most common types of projects um, are ones that create new vegetation, such as rainforest restoration. But our our strategy is to invest in carbon removal of that deliver co-benefits aligned with the UN sustainable development goals and our wider social impact strategy. So for the broader context, our social impact strategy includes a commitment to best-in-class environmental performance, but we have a big, big focus on future skills. We have a big focus on diversity and inclusion and gender equality in particular um, and a big commitment to the United Nations to help um, support health and well-being um, with a particular focus on malaria as well. So we want to make sure that any offsets that we procure um, deliver co-benefits. So an example of that would be um, providing highly efficient cook stoves to communities to prevent deforestation and burning of local forests for cooking in homes. Mm-hmm. And this, of course, has the added benefit of liberating women from collecting the firewood, meaning that they can invest more time in educational work. But importantly, I would say, is our aim is to reduce as much as we can first.
0: Mm-hmm. Great. We're actually seeing a lot more announcements about the SDGs coming through post-pandemic. I feel like it went a bit quiet <laughs> for a couple of a couple of months. I'm so really pleased to hear to hear about that.
1: Yes, I think um, from from what we're seeing is that the pandemic has highlighted the fragility of our global um, economic system and it's made people fundamentally rethink and recognise that actually this isn't a borderless world and none of these issues exist in isolation. And as people connect things like the pandemic with biodiversity loss, people are looking um, to make sure that they tackle the sustainable development agenda holistically. And I think that's that's, such a good thing and I think um, John Alkington talks about green swans and tipping points and I think this acceleration and alignment between the call from governments and investors and consumers to reset and and do things differently combined with the acceleration and adoption of technology we're seeing as a result of being locked in um, is going to create a real opportunity for, for fundamental change in ways that we haven't considered before.
0: Of course, and the, the achievement of the STGs sort of hinges on number 17, which is all about partnerships and collaboration for the goals, which is what I wanted to come on to for a bit. So you mentioned some of the clients that you, you work for and some of them, I'm sure, have really big environmental footprints themselves. So what is the role of a media company like yourselves to help them um, address their their own formats and and to collaborate?
1: Yes, well, many of our global clients, including, I mentioned some early, but including Microsoft, MasterCard, IKEA, um, P&G, Danone, um, they have set their own ambitious targets. And for some of those organisations, we are one of their largest suppliers. So by setting a net zero target, we're joining them on that journey. And that's the first step. But we can go further. We do recognise that many of these companies have a challenging road ahead of them to effectively decarbonise. And that's going to require radical business transformation. And digital, digital and media, transcends all of these sectors. And I think Densu plays a really, or can play a really important role in helping to guide our clients by helping to share learning and also bringing our digital capability to bear. But the other thing I think is worth considering as well is that we can actually really help to drive down emissions within the wider value chain by influencing consumer demand for a more sustainable product, for example. And so Consumer Insights sits at the heart of everything we do. We're an organisation built on data Um, and we have huge power to influence hearts and minds and inspire people to embrace a new type of lifestyle, one that is aspirational and rewarding. And that's why within our net zero strategy, we've actually included an additional commitment, which is to help one billion people live better or make better, more sustainable choices. So we can work with organisations like GM, for example, which is one of our global clients, to help accelerate demand for electric vehicles or mm-hmm. PG, who are doing some really groundbreaking and innovative work in this space, both around their package, um, their packaging and, and also their product, um, so we can help stimulate um, demand within the market for a more sustainable product.
0: Well, Anna, I think we've covered covered so much about what Dentsu is is doing, but I wanted to to bring it back to a personal level for my last question, um, for this. So, in in light of our Net Zero Live event and our Net Zero November, um, content, we're asking everyone who comes on the podcast to shed some light on how the Net Zero movement is changing the role of of the C S O and other sustainability professionals. Um, I know that climate action must have been on your mind a lot of the time, considering your your career, but what, what has it been like in the past 18 months or, or so?
1: I, I think it's been very interesting to see. Um, I think, it, you know, the, it's the net zero movement, but also the pandemic, both of which combined have accelerated this call for a global reset. And business and brands have no choice but to respond. Those that will do will thrive. Those that don't simply won't survive. And whereas sustainability was once the remit of a discrete team, it's now called a business strategy. And I think that's something that we've aimed for for a very long time but i think now it's it's really becoming real and that makes the role of the chief sustainability officer even more important so at dentsu we are lucky to have um, a visionary ceo and wendy clark who is truly amazing and she has made this central to her narrative and to our strategy and she's positioned social impact as a core tenet of how we do business um, which is creating a mandate for accelerated transformation and obviously huge demand um, for the sustainability team as well. And I think that's a trend we will continue to see. Um, Somebody once said that sustainability is innovation spelt incorrectly. Um, I've I've often copied that quote. I think it originated from Unilever. But I think, you know, if we think about sustainability and innovation and what we need to do to fundamentally reset, um, then the chief sustainability officer is going to have to be a central part of any leadership conversation. Mm
0: Well, I'm sure your to-do list is a mile long at the moment, Anna, so I best let you get going.
1: Well, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. So thank you once again
0: to Anna from Dentsu there for all of her insight and wisdom. Edie will be keeping a close eye on the company's next sustainability announcements. Usually, each of these episodes only has one interview, but for today's edition, we have a second exclusive discussion to share with you from EDF, the headline sponsor for Net Zero Live and Net Zero November. I sat down for a call with the company's B2B propositions manager for EV solutions, Hugo Herman, to talk about the role that V2G will play in the net zero transition. A recent study with contributions from Nissan and the Energy Systems Catapult, among others, concluded that connecting EVs to the grid to deliver flexibility services could cut some £270 million a year off of the cost of running the UK's power system within a decade. The environment and climate benefit is, of course, balancing the grid as more renewable generation comes online, more EVs hit our roads, and sector electrification continues. So with all of that in mind, here is the discussion with Hugo on this crucially important topic in full. Well, good morning, Hugo. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast.
2: Good morning for having me.
0: Um, Any any time. I understand it's your first time on on the EDI podcast, right?
2: Yes, indeed. Indeed. Um, happy to be here.
0: And we're happy to have you. But with, with that in mind, would you mind telling everyone listening at home a bit more about um, your your role at EDF?
2: Yes, of course. So I am uh, managing the development of B2B propositions for our electric mobility team at EDF in the UK. And, you know, I, I really love innovations. I'm very interested in hot topics such as with flexibility, renewables. That's why I've I'm, I'm been leading the design and development of mm-hmm. EDF vehicle to grid proposition, which is actually now a commercial offer. Mm-hmm. I imagine uh, it
0: must be a pretty busy busy time for you at the moment.
2: Yes, very interesting. And you've heard uh, the new announcement from the PM this week, which uh, is definitely going to give us more work, which is nice.
1: hmm
0: Fantastic. And you mentioned some of the hot topics and the one that we're here to talk about specifically um, today is V2G and its role in the net zero transition. And V2G is something that we hear about periodically, but we haven't had a big update in a while. So where would you say we are at the terms of V2G um, maturity and and rollout in the UK?
2: Yeah, I, I think UK is definitely one of the leading countries in vehicle to grid. I'd say it's probably thanks to Innovate UK, actually, that have funded um, several B2B and B2C research projects. I'm really uh, thankful to Innovate UK, you know, because they have helped us providing many lessons learned and experience about the technology and the different potential business models with vehicle to grid And that's really why uh, we are now at a position where vehicle to grid makes sense as a commercial offer and not only as a research project. But but definitely... uh, As you know there are still uh, quite a few challenges uh, that slow down the rollout or the access to the technology. I don't know if you would like me to go through through some of these challenges.
0: Yes of course it seems pretty clear that we are at a pivotal moment and that more trials are happening, trials are concluding and this is going beyond trials but yeah why why isn't this mature already?
2: I think we're getting there you know. I think vehicle to grid is a commercial offer right now we can roll it out However, uh, definitely some challenges, for example, uh, the number of vehicles that are compatible for vehicle to grid. That's definitely yeah. one of the main challenges. For now, as you might know, um, it's only ChadiMo vehicles that are compatible for vehicle to grid. So, for example, Nissan, Mitsubishi Outlander, um, but in the near future, you will have CCS vehicle type two that will enable vehicle to grid. And there is uh, an international standard uh, 1511.8 that will definitely help. and. Now you can see plenty of car manufacturers uh, are going there, are having prototypes for vehicle to grid. So we're going to have much more vehicles compatible with vehicle to grid in the near future, I think. But mm-hmm. I think that's definitely something that has slowed down a bit, vehicle to grid uh, these past few years. And also, I think many people mention the expensive cost of vehicle to grid chargers. So the hardware, it's a challenge, but mm-hmm. the cost is going down very quickly as the money is going up. We have seen this uh, in the past few months, actually, and according to Cenex, actually, by 2030, you know, you, you will have some vehicle to grid chargers around 1000 pounds, which is uh, the cost or even lower than a standard charger. So we will be, uh, you know, at the same uh, stage, which is great and will definitely help um, spreading vehicle to grid in the market.
0: Great. And um, what about the, the battery lifecycle um, piece on, on V2G?
2: So battery degradation is definitely uh, quite a complex topic and to be honest, much more research is required. I think the important point from the customer perspective is that vehicle-to-grid is not going to impact the EV battery warranty because we're working very closely to uh, all the different car manufacturers. And I think that's what's important right now for customers to have this peace of mind and knowing that even if they are doing vehicle-to-grid, it's not going to impact their battery warranty, but of course we need uh, to have much more lessons learned to understand the positive or nebati- negative impact of vehicle to grid on, on batteries.
0: Mm-hmm. And and what about the readiness of, of the grid for the EV um, transition? I mean, V2G is often posed as a way to help deal with um, variable output as renewables come online and changing demand is more um, EVs EVs come online. So what what's the impact going to be, and is is the grid ready?
2: Uh, the grid is ready, but um, processes need to be simplified. So I think uh, one of the main issues is uh, the G 99 grid application. For now, they are way too complex. Uh, it takes you know months to uh, get vehicle to grid install on a site. Right. And I think it needs to be simplified, especially for vehicle to grid, because they're quite small assets. And we definitely need, um, you know, a clearer view on future revenue opportunities from DNOs and national grid, because this is the only way you know, to provide confidence to the value chain that vehicle to grid makes sense in the long term, uh, having a clear view on future revenues. So I think that's mm-hmm. both elements that are quite important to have.
0: Mm-hmm. And You mentioned that vehicle-to-grid, if you have just one vehicle or a small fleet, is relatively um, small, but how does it fit into this national net zero transition? As per the PM's announcements, clearly he does see EVs playing really well here.
2: Yes, Um, I mean, as you know, um, by 2030, I think according to national grid, we will have around 10 million of electric vehicles on the roads, which is huge. So we need to manage them uh, correctly, because if you don't manage EV charging correctly, then the evening consumption peak is going to be much higher, mm-hmm. uh, around 5-6 pm, you know. And this means that you will need to make significant investment for the grid to, to be able to tackle the increased demand. And this increased demand will probably be met by gas generation more than uh, renewable energies. Right. So. We need vehicle-to-grid because we need to manage the grid in a, in a proper way uh, and this way we could integrate more renewables into the grid um, as there would be additional flexibility. I think yeah, vehicle-to-grid is definitely the way you know to turn the threat of um, this million of EVs connecting to the grid into a strength to achieve mm-hmm. a net zero.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And how does EDF translate those benefits into a proposition for for the business level? Obviously, a lot of businesses now have net zero targets or or science based targets. So what role can V2G play for for a business or even a a public sector organisation?
2: Okay, so yes, at um, EDF, we've been uh, working for vehicle to grid for the past few years already. We have teamed up with uh, Nuvi, which is uh, one of the vehicle to grid leaders. We have created a joint venture called DRIVE that is operating vehicle to grid in Europe. And really thanks to vehicle to grid knowledge from DRIVE and also our skills from um, our EDF flexibility platform that is called PowerShift, we were able to design the first commercial vehicle to grid offer in the UK, which is currently for B2B customers. And really the strength of this offer is that it's benefits directly the grid. Mm -hmm. first i would say at a national uh, scale because it helps balancing the supply and the demand but also at a more local scale um by uh, being able you know to provide dso services so those services from dnos and i I think that's the role of vehicle to grid you know to bring more flexibility and to help uh, integrate more renewables this way but of course um, the vehicle to grid offer we have at edf benefit the customer by helping them achieve their net zero ambition, but also by providing them some financial savings directly on their energy bill, thanks to an energy cost avoidance, for for example. And those savings actually are quite significant because they can cover um, their annual dra- driving energy needs.
0: Hmm. And, and just quickly, I wanted to ask whether there are any particular um, sectors or business types or organization types that are particularly suited to V2G. So what kind of businesses have you guys worked with already?
2: Yes, so our vehicle to grid offer is really for business customers at the moment. Fleet customers are the best with vehicles coming back uh, at the depot around 5, 6 p.m., staying overnight at the depot and then uh, going back, you know, to do their deliveries or services uh, around 7 a.m. in the morning. So, for example, universities, uh, councils, delivery companies, uh, plenty of uh, B2B customers are suitable for vehicle to grid. And I mean, we are here to assess the suitability uh, customer by customer.
0: And going forward, do you think that more, more SMEs will take this up too?
2: Yes, definitely. Especially uh, when uh, all companies will have uh, half hourly settlement, it will very help uh, the uh, vehicle to grid to get there.
0: Well, I think that a lot of companies will be looking at lower consumption and better energy management um, after lockdown. So I think there's probably not been a better time to have this interview, Hugo.
2: Yes, definitely. And I mean, don't hesitate uh, to send me any question, you know, by email or contacting us through our website.
0: Thanks so much to Hugo from EDF there for his insight, which come at a super exciting time for the EV transition in the UK taking into account this week's 10-point plan for the green recovery and net zero transition. If you'd like more information on the proposition that we discussed, please visit edfenergy.com electric dash cars vehicle dash grid. Of course, the net zero movement has been gathering pace far beyond the walls of ED, EDF and Dentsu International. And with that in mind, it's time for our last part of this podcast, the net zero news in brief. Over the past week, there have been some pretty big developments in the conversation, even with COVID-19, so I'm going to pull out the top three stories for you now. Firstly, Tesco announced on Monday that it has brought its net zero deadline forward from 2050 to 2035. The supermarket was one of the first UK businesses to set a net zero target, which it developed after setting 1.5 c aligned science-based targets in what was, at the time, a world first. It has chosen to accelerate its climate plans following increased investments in renewable electricity and EVs. Secondly, the UK's nine largest water and sewage services firms, convened by Water UK, have published a roadmap for delivering a net zero sector within a decade. The roadmap outlines plans to develop three gigawatts of new renewable generation, to electrify vehicles and to deliver nature-based carbon sequestration projects like peatland and grassland creation and restoration. Last but not least, I have to mention that there are reports that Canada is developing net zero legislation. A date hasn't been formally raised, but several national news outlets in Canada have floated 2050. Should the nation agree the legislation, it will be following the likes of New Zealand, South Korea and Japan, as well as the UK. Before I sign off for this episode, I'd like to take a moment to thank everyone who came along to Net Zero Live last week. We held the event virtually for the first time ever and we have to say that it was a pleasure to do so. If you missed any of the sessions but you registered to attend, you'll shortly be receiving an email featuring recordings so you can catch up on all of the slides and the key discussion points. And in the coming days, we will have much more Net Zero November content. But for this episode, we're just about out of time, and I'd like to thank you all for joining me on our Net Zero Navigators podcast. If your organisation has a Net Zero story that you would like us to cover please drop me an email at newsdesk at fav-house.com and myself and the rest of the team will be back with our usual sustainable business cover podcast in December. Please do subscribe to and follow the Edi podcast portfolio on SoundCloud, iTunes or Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And for more net zero news, the Edi website and email newsletter will be your go-to. The sign up button for our newsletter is in the top right hand corner. But until next time, it's a goodbye from me. Goodbye.